Netlify is a cloud provider for Jamstack applications. To make those applications more performant, Netlify has built out capacity for edge computing, specifically edge handlers. Edge handlers can be used for a variety of use cases that need lower latency or other edge computing functionality. Matt Billman Christensen is the CEO of Netlify and joins the show to talk through the engineering behind edge handlers. Matt, welcome back to the show. Thank you. As you know, your company, Netlify, started mostly focused on static sites, but has expanded into more and more dynamic content. What have been the difficulties in expanding into increasingly dynamic websites? It's always been the vision since the beginning. Like when we first started talking about Jamstack, we were sort of looking at the whole ecosystem spanning, um, of course, static site generators, but also the single page application frameworks and and all the gray areas in between. And of course, right since the beginning, app.netlify.com has always been a very dynamic application running on Netlify and, and being built with Netlify. And I think, of course, when AWS Lambda came around, that was sort of one of the moments where we started seeing that there was a real opportunity for sort of the front-end presentation layer to also own a piece of the API responses or glue code or any of those pieces as part of like this layer of the stack that should be really interesting from the front-end web developers. So I think it's been like a very gradual path to introducing more, more of the capabilities that makes building dynamic applications with, with a Jamstack approach easier and introduces less friction for the developers. And then of course, as, as we keep just looking at our like user base and talking to our customers and talking to enterprises and so on, we just keep looking at like where where is the friction, right? Like what is it that makes life harder than it should be for, for development teams? And then we start thinking, okay, where is it that we can introduce like the right level of abstraction that will simplify things and make make it easier for development teams to build and deploy and create great user experiences. Right. So that brings us to today's topic, which is edge handlers. Can you explain what an edge handler is? Yeah. So early on when we launched Netlify, we took this early decision of, of building our own edge network from the beginning. And we did that because like traditionally you had like traditional CDNs that were really built to sit in front of an origin, right? And then proxy requests through an origin web server and implement some different caching rules and so on. And we wanted to fundamentally get rid of that concept of your web server, right? Like we wanted developers to just push to Git and now their front end is live on a globally distributed network. As we started down that path, we very quickly realized that that network would need certain capabilities, like because all of the things you would traditionally do in your web server, you would now need to be able to do on the edge things like proxying and redirect and rewrite rules and uh, even a bit of the more complex use cases like uh, geolocation or or role-based authentication and so on, right? So the reason we built our own net edge network was with that, that we knew that at scale we would really need to, to own the software running on the edge to solve those problems for developers, right? So since the beginning, our, our edge network had like a declarative rule set where you could use an underscore redirects file in our system to define these kind of rules. And that solves a broad set of use cases, right? But as we talk to larger enterprises and as we look into just in general what's also happening in the framework landscape and so on, 
of course we can see that there there are things at that edge layer that you can't just do with a declarative rule. This can be anything from things like imagine you're a retailer and you have stores in different specific cities in lo specific locations and you want to make sure that if a user opened up your website and they are close to one of those stores they automatically see the store they're close to right on the front page because that's probably what they're interested in right like that's something that you can't define just by saying if the user is in this country or whatever then then show this you need to do the mapping on the fly between stores and user location and see if there actually is a store and and take a decision right so that was one of the problem that that people couldn't quite solve in this way more fine-grained authentication is another case right like right now you can put up rules based on just the role but sometimes you you have to take decisions based on the specific user and what they have access to and so on. Fine-grained personalization, like for e-commerce and multivariant testing, or all of these things are also something that, that gets more complex. And then there are framework use cases, like how could we easily integrate things like imagery sizing into a framework and just have the edge pick up the right query parameters and send your requests on to Cloudinary. Like there's a whole set of, of actual use cases that we saw could be really useful to solve for. And the way we've solved for it is to build what we call edge handlers, which gives developers the full capability of programming our edge layer in JavaScript. So you can essentially completely take control over the request response cycle directly at the edge nodes and run a program that can either just quickly intercept the request and send it somewhere else or completely take over the request response cycle and render and return a response. Or you can do response transformations, right? So you can pass through the request to what we would normally serve and then run a streaming transformation on that response to insert personalized blocks or, or anything like that. So it becomes a really powerful primitive that, that developers can build with and that framework authors and build plugin authors and so on can use to, to offer more advanced edge functionalities. So that programmability, is it handled by some AWS Lambda-like functionality or what exactly is the compute layer that's serving these programmable requests? Yeah, that's been a, what's been a lot of work since we have built that ourselves on top of Isolate. So basically relying on, on VH's concept of, of Isolate as the way we can spin up these programmable logic for very, very little cold start overhead. So again, it's also a programming layer that's a bit more, that's more restricted than what you would get in a Netlify function, for example, right? Like that a Netlify function will still be the right place to go to write an API endpoint in Node.js and so on, right? The edge handlers does come with much stricter execution timelines and so on, but also with no cold start and very fast response times. And we've done a show on isolates. Could you talk a little bit more about what an isolate is? Yeah, so isolates are is like the V8 JavaScript engine. It's It's a concept they have for running a bit of JavaScript in a context that's completely locked down from the rest of the system. Of course, when you think of JavaScript, right, like the main use case for JavaScript originally and, and the reason Google built V8 was to run other people's code that your browser just randomly downloads from the internet and run it safely in your browser without giving malicious access to your local file system or anything like that, right? So, of course, this concept of isolation and security have always 
been really key to JavaScript as a language, right? And that's what comes in handy once we start running multi-tenant code also as an, at an edge network where we need to be able to guarantee that one tenant can only get access to a certain amount of, of resources and that we can stop the execution if it takes more CPU time than what's allotted to it and that we can guarantee that the code running in that isolate can inspect to other users' memory areas or, or anything like that. And then, of course, V8, when it runs a program, will, will of course, like first like pass the JavaScript and turn it into an, to an optimized AST and everything, right? Like, and part of what we also take advantage of is that we can distribute the result of that rather than the raw JavaScript so we can get this very easily resumable compute environment that can process requests and responses. Could you walk me through the life cycle of a request that gets handled by an edge handler? Yeah, so in general, the, the main point is when a request comes in, which is sort of the on-request handler, where we have the headers of the request available, the path, everything, and the edge handler can inspect all of those to potentially take decisions, right? So at that moment, you could change part of the request, right? Like you could change the actual URL of the request and tell our proxy cache, you should actually proxy this request somewhere completely new or invoke a function or anything like that. We could, and in that process, you could also proxy it somewhere and have the edge handler append headers to the request object and so on. So there's first that on request part then of course there's an unresponse like once you've processed that request and done whatever you want with the request headers and the request object our proxy cache will will process the request and decide whether it needs to invoke a function serve a static file or a proxy somewhere and once that decision has been taken you will get the unresponse handler where you can do things to the response you could append headers to the response or you could even intercept the response and do things to the response body, either by first reading the response body and then deciding what to do based on that. Or you could do a streaming transformation of the response body where you essentially put in a kind of processor that as our system streams the response body to the end user can make changes on the fly. What programming languages are supported? Right now, from the outset, we support JavaScript. And of course, there's a lot of languages by now that compiles down to, to JavaScript, like TypeScript and so on. We're also looking into the right way of supporting WebAssembly to open that broader up. And we might also explore native support for TypeScript rather than having to bundle TypeScript first. Right now, the underlying implementation is based on Dino as a runtime. So Dino supports TypeScript natively. But right now, we're a little more conservative and allow just JavaScript right away in the business stage. I'd like to talk a little bit more about your edge network. We've given a high-level view at this point for what edge handlers are, but tell me about the edge network. How many nodes are in it? What is it deployed to? Where is the edge network? Yeah, so we run a couple of um, separated networks from an infrastructure perspective, right? So all of our free and self-serve traffic run out of one network. And the providers we use changes a bit. Like we, in total on all of our network, we, we are basically running across all the cloud providers, like anyway from DigitalOcean, Azure, Amazon, Google, Alibaba, Yandex, Packet, and so on. 
And then on our free and self-serve network, we'll tend to prioritize more like being able to offer people solid, robust edge network with affordable bandwidth prices and so on, right? Like and on the enterprise tier, we'll optimize for the size of the network and for the performance for enough cash, for more cash space per user and higher reliability and redundancy. How do you manage that edge network? That's a lot of servers in a lot of different places. It's a lot of servers with a lot of different places. And of course, we spend a lot of time building the the automation infrastructure to manage all of that from like Terraform plays a key role in the actual provisioning of infrastructure across all of these different providers. We're using Ansible for sort of the initial setup, console templates. We run a console cluster as well to distribute settings and so on. It's for sure a big machine to operate. Of course, also lots of tooling around monitoring, alerting, filtering, all of that, and a sizable SRE team that, that focuses on that part. Like part of our infrastructure will be, for example, our DNS controller that constantly monitors every single CDN edge node. And if it detects issues on any node, it'll immediately like roll it out of a rotation at the CDN network and also allows us to configure a network pattern in general. Like For example, as an interesting example, for a while, we had issues with Russia blocking access to AWS instances and the like that created connectivity problems for users in, in Russia. So we rolled out a presence inside Russia on, on Yandex. And when we rolled that out, we started getting reports from users in Ukraine that they could no longer access their sites because they got routed to the closest edge node, which was in, in Russia, and Russia was blocking Ukrainian traffic. So now we had to like tell our infrastructure, if you are in Ukraine, even if the closest pop might be Yandex, we need to send you somewhere else. So, so all of that is also a, a lot of constant work, of course. Can we talk from the outside looking in a little bit? So when a request comes from Ukraine, for example, what's the series of events that happens to respond to that request? I mean, first, there'll be a DNS lookup that'll send you to the best available CDN server, right? As I said, if some if some CDN node has an issue, we'll remove it from rotation. So you'll get routed to the best available CDN session. You'll open up a connection there and start a TLS handshake to verify the certificate for, our, for your domain. And our system there, since we run millions and millions of sites will have a smart way of finding the right certificate and caching that at the edge as well and getting it resolved quickly. Then you'll start the actual HCP cycle where our system will process request headers and everything and figure out what to do. If there is any rules, edge rules defined for your site, they will get invoked directly at the edge and that could involve like starting up an edge handler or calling into an edge handler to see if that wants to do anything with the request. And there'll be a whole state machine running throughout based on continuations and so on. Of course, our edge nodes needs to manage very high amounts of, of concurrencies, both across like threads and event loops. They will process that request. And once the request processing, which is both like the edge rules or, or the edge handlers are done with the request, 
we'll do a cache lookup to see if we have a response for that finally processed request already lying around in, in our cache. And if we do, we'll just serve this response. If there's an edge handler in place, we might, of course, like do a streaming response transformation, or we might have our system do broadly encoding or things like that. But uh, that's actually the typical case, right? Like we have a cache hit rate in the high 90s, right? So in so in most cases, especially on the enterprise CDN where there's plenty of cache space, that's exactly what will happen, right? Like a request will come in, we'll find the right cached object and we'll serve it back with, within a millisecond or so. In other cases, we might find that there's nothing in the cache. We then need to either fetch the static file and put it in the cache and serve it, or we'll detect that the request is a function invocation where we'll send it to a little invocator that will just like set all the right client context, all of that, invocate an AWS Lambda and send back the response. Or we might see that it's a proxy request, right? Like in which case we'll just directly from the edge node append some signature headers and so on that the other origins can use to verify that it comes from us and then just proxy the request directly to another origin. And that's sort of the typical like life cycle of a Netlify request. How does authentication work for these edge handlers? So we already have a concept of authentication, even with our declarative rule sets based on JSON web tokens. So if a request comes in and it has either a cookie with a JSON web token or an authorization header with a JSON web token, the edge node will see if that domain has some identity service configured. By default, we have our own identity service but on higher plans, you can also like put in a custom secret to verify tokens with and so on. So if that's in place, the edge node will check that the integrity of that token. And if it is a verifiable token, it's then exposed both to the rules engine where you can use like rules based around claims in the token. Or if it's a function invocation, we'll have like all those claims available in the client context for the function. And the same if it's an edge handler, you will simply just have a context in the edge handler where you can look up and see if there's already a verified JSON web token. And then you can easily use those claims in your custom logic to take decision based on like, what do we want to do with this user? Okay, we've spoken more about how edge handlers work than their actual applications at this point. Could you give me some examples for why edge handling would be useful? Yeah, I mean, there there are many different kinds of them ranging from like things you could do at the framework level to things you could do at the for enterprises and so on, right? Like a really common use case for them is around personalization, especially with if you're building, like we, we hear that especially from e-commerce customers, right? Where being able to do personalization on the fly can be really important. And that's like one part where just being able to do that as a, for example, as a response transformation or just like, deciding when the request comes in, whether to show one pre-built page or another, that can be really powerful. More advanced sort of proxying or almost API gateway-like functionality can be really powerful as well, right? Like when a request comes in, you can decide at different origin, you can rewrite to a different site or a different project, or you can rewrite to a completely different service. You can append like the right headers if you want to proxy to a secured API. You can like verify a web token, 
decide based on the claims of that token to to set certain headers in an API request to an external service, right? There's a deal of, like I mentioned, sort of the retailer concept. That's one we've heard often that using more advanced geolocalization features. We did a small demo of that at the Jamstack conference around, uh, I think we call it Votelify, right? Where as soon as you go to, to the page, we'll detect what's the closest voter registration location based on your location, and we'll show that directly on the page. Then there's also a framework-like features. For example, imagine you want to build a component in React for images that can be resized on the fly as they're served, right? So you might simply have a little component that where you set different image transformation options, and then it appends those in some format to the image URL as query parameters. Now you could easily write a little edge handler for Netlify that'll detect those query parameters and see if those are present and maybe if they're signed in the, in the right way, then it can rewrite the request object to point to Cloudinary with the right settings for Cloudinary. And now Cloudinary can do an image transformation, return the transformed image, and we can cache it on our edge servers and, and send it back to you, right? Like edge handlers would be a really easy way to accomplish something like that without us specifically having to build it as a feature. You could imagine the similar things if you wanted to experiment with a bundler outputting device-specific bundles for bundle size optimization, for example, right? You could then write an edge handler that when you request a JavaScript bundle will check the user agent header and everything, and then based on those characteristics, return the right bundle for the device that made the request, right? Like a lot of these things become programmable in a way that can be really interesting for, for framework authors to take advantage of. Tell me about some of the engineering challenges that emerged when you were building edge handlers. The biggest challenge is running the edge handlers in context of a proxy cache where we wanted to be able to do things like response transformations and we wanted the edge handler to be able to interact with the caching software as well, right? So, so giving access to storing and getting objects in a space of the cache specific to the edge handlers and running transform like running response transformations and so on, right? Because edge proxy caches tend to be pretty advanced pieces of software handling like very high levels of concurrency with lots of IO going on and so on, right? Like so figuring out how we could take that layer and build a bridge between the code running in an isolate and the actual proxy cache code. That's been one of the big challenges where we had to, like, before even sort of really building the edge handler, start rebuilding a lot of the code that actually runs our rules engine, everything we, we completely rewrote from scratch in Rust, migrating from, from C++ to make it more, like, easier for the team to, to work on and, and a bit of developer experience on our end. So that's, that's been a really big project starting at the start of this year for us. Are edge handlers useful for doing something like A-B testing? Yeah, absolutely. That That's one of the popular use cases we see around it, right? Like you can imagine doing it in, in many ways, right? But if you essentially have some way of, of bucketing the users into experiments, and that can be something an edge handler can simply do by if a request comes in and it has no cookie set for the experiments it's looking for, can 
assign some random number to a cookie and set it on the response. And then it can either like pick the response, like imagine that you just have, for example, let's say you have your pricing page and you want to run an experiment with three different versions of the pricing page and see which one performs best. You could do that simply by having like, when you build the site, building three different pricing pages, pricing page A, B, and C, right? And then you can have the edge handler look for the cookie. If there's no cookie, assign a random value. And then based on that value, pick either A, B, and C, rewrite the request, and then just let the cache serve the right page, right? And then you would probably make, make sure either to bring that cookie all the way to the client side or to inject the little code in the response to track which bucket the user fall into and pass that along to whatever analytics system you're using so you can start seeing what was the behavior of users that saw pricing pace version A, B, or C, right? Like, so that's, that's one quite robust way of doing experiments on a page-by-page -page basis. But you could also imagine even, again, like building your own little A-B testing framework where if you have a component, you might have an experiment component that gives the experiment a name and then supplies like for that specific component, three different HTML variations you want to test against, right? And then you can have an edge handler, again, doing a similar track is assigning a cookie, de deciding how to bucket the user, and then doing a response, a streaming re response transformation where as you're streaming the response, you'll ignore the components that's marked as experiments but not part of this user bucket and you'll include the components that are marked as in this user bucket, right? And now you can even do like fine-grained multivariant experience where you could potentially run multiple experiments on the same page, right? So this is something I see potentially being really useful for the ecosystem, both in terms of people being able to kind of build experimentation frameworks around it or just quickly building page-based uh, experiments and running those. What's the process of deploying an edge handler? Yeah, this is one of the really core pieces of it, right? Like, because of course we've seen other edge platforms and so on, but what we've heard over and over again is that if you have like one team that operates the edge layer, often the networking team and so on, and then you have a different team that actually builds the web layer and, and deploys that, then you end up with completely different deployment processes for each of those two layers and often with different teams owning them that are not very good at communicating with each other. And if you're imagining building like things like I just described, the pricing page experiment and so on, right? Like you're starting to couple those two layers really tightly together. So if those two teams doesn't work well together or if the deployment mechanics are completely different and separate, that often leads to, to really costly rollout errors or bugs or communication errors and a very cumbersome development process that in many cases just makes people give up on the approach. So with Netlify, what's, what's really essential is that all of this just lives in your Git repository, right? So you have a Git repository with your normal build tool, framework, whatever, that can output the front-end layer you can have your typical folder with Netlify functions that are deployed into AWS Lambda, and you can have a folder called edge handlers that'll deploy as edge handlers. 
if you spin up Netlify dev locally, we'll give you a dev server that includes all of this, right? So you can directly locally work with edge handlers, with functions, with your normal single page application framework or site generator or whatever. And whenever you open a pull request in Git, we'll build and bundle everything. We'll deploy it to a unique deploy preview URL where you can see everything together in the full production setting, make sure it works, can even make built plugins that can vary like that can run integration test suites against the deployed results before it goes live everything like that and as you merge something into master we'll take it live and give you all the normal capabilities of netlify including like immutable deployments with instant rollbacks and all of that could you say more about the engineering differences between netlify edge handlers and netlify functions yeah so Netlify functions are implemented, like our implementation runs on top of AWS Lambda because they have the best sort of cold start and are easy for us to work with, right? But functions have like a full node environment where you can use any NPM modules and so on, right? And the current functions we have are always like request response. They have to return a full response. You can't, from a Lambda function, you can't do like streaming operations and so on, but you have like a full a fully functioning modern node environment and you can do anything from a quick response to a response that would take a couple of seconds to run. It's a great way to build like microservices and API endpoints and talk to databases, talk to APIs or services, glue together different services and so on, right? We are also just now introducing background functions, which is just like Netlify functions, but instead of being part of the request response cycle, you just trigger a function and then it runs in the background and can run from up for up to 15 minutes. So you can program like processing tasks or workflow steps or anything like that. And then edge handlers again, like the big advantage they have is that they're part of the full request response cycle of the front end assets, right? Like, so they, kick in before the actual front-end asset is served, then you can do request manipulation, you can do response transformation, you can proxy to other places. But on the other hand, it's a very restricted environment, right? Like you should only do things that from a compute perspective can be done in milliseconds, right? Like if you're doing anything that could take seconds or so on, then it's just not the right layer of the stack to do that in, right? Like so, again, they're typically really useful for taking routing decisions, authentication decisions, personalization decisions, or for doing like streaming response transformations, or even just from deciding on the fly to stream a response from a different origin or service. All of those things are, are really powerful there, right? But they would not necessarily be a great place to build a full microservice or do server-side rendering or, or things like that because the environment is much more constrained. And apart from that, I would also say that typically, from just from an architecture perspective, whenever you're dealing with an API or a database or anything like that, typically you will want the code that interacts with that to run close to the API or the database rather than running close to the end user because you might have a couple of round trips, right? So the end result will be much faster if the code runs where the data is rather than where the user is. But on the other hand, if you're doing anything like modifying a pre-built page or proxying anywhere, 
or doing API gateway functionality or taking authentication decisions, that code you want to run as close to the end user as possible for performance. What are some of the current limitations of edge handlers that you'd like to work on? We are still in the early access stage of the product, sort of really working with customers to figure out like their developer experience around it and how to make it best to work with, how to look into their specific use cases and so on. We have to see to which degree over time does it become interesting to have, apart from just access to a cache, at what, like, to which degree does it become interesting to have access to some kind of distributed key value store, or is it better for us to figure out easy ways to use existing distributed databases like Fauna or Dynamo and so on, right? Like there, there it's more a question of sort of really doing the, the customer discovery and figuring out like when you're building real world projects with this technology, how can we make it as frictionless for developers to work with as possible? Are developers adopting the edge handlers in the ways that you expected, or has it been difficult to get people to try out new functionality? I would say it's still too early for me to say exactly how that will play out. I'm just really excited to see what people do with it that I might not have thought about, because that's always the the interesting parts when you launch these kind of primitives to people to, to build upon, that there'll be a bunch of use cases that, that we know these will be really useful for and where it's like where where people are very actively requesting access because they are looking to solve specific problems that we know that this technology can give them solutions for, right? Like so in that area it's like a very like we know those areas and we know that that there's real demand for solving those problems. But what I'm curious to see is is all the things that will sort of emerge organically that creative developers will come up with when you give them a new compute primitive that they didn't have before. I'd like to talk a little bit about state management. I think oftentimes these edge handlers are stateless, but there are times when you want state management. Like we did a show with Cloudflare a while ago about their Cloudflare key value store, like a key value store that they push to the edge. Is there statefulness in these edge handlers or or are they completely stateless? There's a cache API that it's a bit similar to a key value store, but it's not persistent, right? Like, so whatever you put there, like, should be used as a cache. You'll, if you need permanent state, you'll need somewhere else to talk to where you can fetch that from and, and put it in the cache and then use the cached object and so on. We don't have a built-in data solutions, and I'm still not sure if that's the right approach yet, just because very often you see, like, very different Different applications requires very different types of contracts with their persistence layers. So I'm not sure that like that it's necessarily a one size fits all. But that's one of the learnings we'll go through as we as we go through the early access program and later through a public release. So with these edge handling caching layer, if I make a change to a cache at one endpoint, does the cache have to get replicated to all the different other endpoints? Right now, the cache is endpoint specific. So if you store something in, in a specific location, it's specific to that location. And we don't push it out to the other locations at, at this time. Okay, right. So this is why you need some persistent store to push that data to. So, but I could 
for example, write to the cache and then have the cache write to the database and have the database push eagerly out to all the other caches, right? You could do things like that. You could use something like FaunaDB, which is globally distributed and talks HTTP as your persistence layer, right? And then use the individual edge nodes to, to make sure to cache for performance, but use like Fauna as the source of truth, for example. Bring up FaunaDB. FaunaDB often gets mentioned in the same sentence as the Jamstack. I've always had trouble understanding what is the connection between FaunaDB and the Jamstack? It's an interesting database to me because it's built with a lot of the same sort of capabilities that you often think of when you think of applications built with the Jamstack, right? Like it's fully managed, but not just in the sense that with some managed databases, like the typical experiences that you go in and then you say like, I want you to run this database cluster for me with these replication setting and these instance sizes in this region and then you can later go in and say, I want you to scale them up, or I want them to scale them down and so on. But you're essentially still working at the abstraction of, of working with servers, right? Where FaunaDB feels like an actual serverless database, right? Like you just say, you just tell Fauna, I want a database, and then you start reading and writing data. It's also globally distributed and using this uh, Calvin algorithm to find the right balance between consistency guarantees while giving you a high availability, globally distributed database, which is an interesting characteristics for, for parts of the stack, like edge handlers and so on, that are also globally distributed, right? Like where you can then start having a data layer that's close to to those edge handlers as well, rather than always having to, to go to a round trip to one specific data center in, in a central region. And then it speaks to HTTP, right? Like, so you can talk to it from any part of the stack that can send an HTTP request where traditional databases are often very like tied to the idea of opening a pool of connections and keeping them running, which tends to be a little trickier from layers like serverless functions or edge handlers or anything like that. It also means that you can technically speak to Fauna directly from the browser and it does have an authentication concept. It's obviously still early stage for that kind of database and that kind of experience. And I'm sure there'll be a lot of interesting players in that space. But I think what's interesting with Fauna is really that it's one of the few, like it's one of the only databases right now that really feels like it has those characteristics of what you could call a serverless database. Okay, it seems worth zooming out here and talking even more about the Jamstack. So we we last spoke a couple of years ago how has your perspective on the Jamstack changed since then? Our vision since the beginning has always been that the Jamstack is centered around like the decoupling of the front-end web layer from the back-end layer and the back-end layer itself splitting into all these different APIs and services where, where some are your own, but a lot of them are also other people's services, right? And, and that we've just really seen playing out more and more in the, in the ecosystem. I think... Just a few years ago, it was way more something that we had to go sort of convince people that this was a viable approach, that it would be a thing, that you would want to do it and so on. And now there's like just way more pull from the whole ecosystem, like with big providers adopting it and lots of enterprises looking in this direction. And it's sort of starting to feel more that like that it's a given that this is going to be a very big part of the future architecture of the web. Then there are all 
like these interesting parts of pieces of it that has grown stronger over time. Like when we launched Netlify Functions, we were sort of really the first like to build with that idea of just like a folder with your functions together with your front end and they all deploy together and so on, right? And now we're starting to see that abstraction becoming like more common in the space and more more something that people are seeing. This is like a key piece of the architecture. So the emergence of serverless functions as an architectural piece have been interesting, right? And I'm now thinking really about that whole sort of compute layer of the Jamstack going from edge handlers that can play an active role in, in the request response cycle, but are best for things that runs in milliseconds, functions that can be used to building microservices, API endpoints, anything like that, and can run for a couple of seconds, and then background functions that runs asynchronously and can be used for any kind of task where you just want to trigger it and say to the user, now it's running and then give a response later or send out emails or do API requests, but without any direct interaction. So in that way, we for sure evolved more around like the whole serverless compute space and how that plays into the overall Jamstack architecture. The other place that that's become clearer and clearer to me is, is this interesting way where we also really moving from a world where traditionally you really had like your application with your database. And now we're going more and more to a world where you have your application and then you have data, but in many different places, right? Like, so if you use Netlify Identity or Auth0 or Okta, you'll have like your user data there, right? And it's kind of a database, but it's specific to your user and it has both the user data and also the, the sort of special purpose logic to deal with users around login, sign-in, remember password, authentication rules, all of that, right? You might have... A different, like you might use Stripe for plans and subscriptions, and now you essentially have a different database with Stripe, right? Like, but that's like not a general purpose database, and that also comes with a special purpose compute layer around subscriptions and upgrades and downgrades and pricing rules and all of that. And you end up maybe with a smaller general purpose data layer that's sort of more of a glue layer between all these different data sources that you work with. So that's been another like interesting thing to really start seeing in practice and, and start thinking through what does it mean when you no longer have just like one application and one database, but an application that talks to a lot of different places that has part of your data. And of course, we're seeing services like Hesura Cloud or Apollo's Federation service or TakeShapes, Content Mesh Layer, anything like that starting to also give solutions to how can you as a developer easily tie those different data sources together. Well, that's an exciting place to close off. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure.